Support for Oyster World Radio comes from you, our listeners. If you would like to support the show, visit the link in the show description or visit patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio. For only $5 a month, you get all of the behind-the-scenes coverage of how these random interviews materialize, plus some travel tips. So don't miss out and support the show today. More support means meeting more people that you would normally never meet, less travel headaches while you're on the road, and you get to learn the ins and outs of everywhere I go. Become a Patreon and an expert traveler at patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio and support the show today. Welcome to Oyster World. Radio. Hello, Oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, the podcast where we broaden our perspectives by listening to the stories of people from all over the globe. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and this episode is the beginning of a four-part series covering the apartheid of South Africa. When I got to Johannesburg, I got slapped in the face by the history of this place. Apartheid was the forced and legal separation of the white community from the indigenous Africans. It was a complete and utter suppression of the black community. Golden diamonds were found in Joburg, and while the white community reaped the economic benefits of the resources, Africans were forced into segregated areas called townships, where they worked in glorified servitude. There are so many layers to the ingenious design of the apartheid government that it's terrifying, and very V for Vendetta-like. But it's important to learn about these things and what happened here in an attempt to never let it happen again. Because discrimination and suppression are still happening, and recognizing it is the first step in stopping it. Our first guest is Lizette van der Linde, who is generous enough to share her perspective from the white side of the fence. Now, before we get to the episode, a couple terms to take note. Afrikaans refers to the white population of Dutch descent and their language. They were some of the first white settlers in the region and are not related to the indigenous Africans or their many languages. The other thing to take note is that during apartheid, the labels black and colored were different classes of people. You will hear these terms throughout the next couple interviews, and black refers to the indigenous people, while colored is a mix of, of black and European. These next interviews are long, but important. As always, I appreciate your ears and your willingness to learn more about the world. It is through those ears, and listening to not only the happy endings, but the tragedies of our world, that we gain the wisdom needed to make the world a better place. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So Lizette... Welcome to Oyster World Radio. We're really excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's a little bit cooler in Joburg than normal. Yes, <laughs> so it is nice. We, it is now summer once again. My God, is it hot here? It never. Yes. We don't normally have this type of temperature. Um, really? Is yeah, it just our for us? average, they always say Johannesburg has the best temperature in South Africa. So what, what happened? Yeah. What, what's the deal? Well, well, I think the environmentalists would say global warming. <laughs> well, it's it's not great, whatever it is. I'm not. I'm yeah, not we're not used to it. the 35. So that's <laughs> like yeah, not not on constant heat wave. But there we are. Today's a little bit cloudy and it's cooler. <laughs> that's good. So that's good news. Yeah, but we're here yeah. in the lovely city of Johannesburg, yeah. South Africa, and I'm excited to meet you. And you have a very interesting story that I wanted to share with all our <laughs> listeners. So. I'm going to dive right in because we can't waste any time. All right, let's so, jump into it. <laughs> so you grew up around this area after you had a short stint in America. That's where great. Your dad yes. studied at MIT. That's great. Yes. 
and then came back and you start to jump around all of this area. That's right. Eventually landing on a farm. So you were here in in Johannesburg, out of Johannesburg, but ended up in most of your life in your childhood in the farm life. And what yes. I have no idea what that even means. Like what <laughs> I was a city boy. Okay. But what is a farm in Johannesburg like? What was a normal Well, day? yes, I think going from you know, your normal suburb type house uh, where you at the most had a cat and a dog or a bird mm-hmm. um, going out to the farm, which is about 40 kilometers from Johannesburg okay, on so the western far. side. So it's not too far, totally commutable. And suddenly being surrounded by, I think it's 42 acres or 21 morgue. I have no idea what a log is, how, but 41 acres. How people understand sizes all around the world. But um, it was like you being on this huge land, which isn't actually so huge when you grow up, but yeah. yes. Um, and then my mom going on a farming stunt and starting to buy sheep and pigs and cattle and ducks and turkeys, which was not a very well-farmed thing in South Africa, as far as I know. I never knew anybody that had a turkey until my mom introduced and it. you had a pretty good impression of a turkey, too. <laughs> which I think is pretty dang good. <laughs> so you heard that a lot. You heard the gobbles from, from the I'm backyard. gobbling away. <laughs> so that was... So but it was great, you know, because you had these little chicks, you know, day-old chicks, and they're all fluffy and everything. And and then when the cattle started calving, you had these little baby calves. And they, sorry, a calf is a baby. Um, but, you know, once you'd wean them from the mother, you still had to give them formula. And that was always something that our friends that would come and visit would love when we show them how to get the little calf's mouth with the two fingers, pull him down into the little pail with, with the formula and him drinking. It's, yeah, it's quite... So you had to do a lot of the chores, too, I'm guessing. did a lot of guessing. chores, yes, yes, so it was yes. Full on and she had life. vegetable gardens and we'd have to go and pick the vegetables or water the vegetables. And then when it was like, um, not potting season, what do you, canning season, and there was fruit, you'd help, you know, wash the fruit split it open, get the pips out so that she could make her jams and jellies. And so it was just consoles. a fun life. Yeah, and you it was fun. And there was, was like bushes ground. so you could run into the bushes and not play cowboys and Indians, but something to that effect. Something affects <laughs> cops and robbers or yes, whatever the yes, effect is. Yeah. So yeah, it was a wonderful It was childhood. lovely. Yes, it was lovely. And that carried almost through your university. Yes, we we left there in my second year of university, and then we gravitated right back into Johannesburg again. Yeah, Yeah. so you came back to Johannesburg, in a suburb outside of Johannesburg, and you started to become an opera singer. Yes, I studied a Bachelor of Music degree with singing as my major, and Piano has my second instrument. Those years of bachelor of music degrees had, you had to do two instruments, one as a major and one as a sub. And yeah, those were my two. And when made you want to do opera singing? What was the cause? You know what? I actually went to university 
because I thought I was a great piano player, <laughs> which yeah. I turned out not to be in my, in, no. my, in my first year. And the head of department called me in at the end of the first year and said, you know what, there's a couple of things you can do. You can drop out or um, we've listened to your singing and we think there's more potential in your singing than in your piano playing. Uh, so are you interested in opera? Um, then you could like carry on and I'm like, yeah, because by that time I had totally fallen in love with singing. Like I'd done a bit of singing as a kid in church, you know, mm-hmm. sing, 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 you know, kumbayas and all that type of stuff. And so I always liked singing but I never thought of it seriously as a as a until career. this moment when until said, oh, the my end goodness. of my first year at university I'm like yes this is what I want to do you know yeah and then it became my major and hmm. and just like that you started you dove right into opera singing and that was that was the path that were, was the path and uh, yeah um so this is a really interesting that direction part. yeah this is a really interesting part of your story yeah. and I I enjoy it because you had life always throws different yeah. paths in the way and you were full in opera. You mm. were studying with the best of South Africa. Yeah. You had plans to go to Italy and then a guy showed up. We yeah. tend to ruin things usually. <laughs> but, yes, that happens to many women, I think, or young girls. A guy shows up. Yes, the guy's name was Nico. Is Nico. And I was going to say, he's not a bad guy. It ended up no, working he's out, not a bad but. guy. <laughs> he himself had different plans for his life. He was an aerial photographer. Oh my so goodness. he did a lot of aerial photography in uh, our neighboring countries, Gaborone, the, uh, the Caprivi or the Okavanga Delta. So, yeah, that was the way his life was but progressing until he too. had an encounter and his whole life changed, yeah. And I love how you guys met, too, because it was this weird, <laughs> strange moment that yes. you shared. And you have to share the story, especially with your mom's perspective. <laughs> My cousin, once removed, decided that his friend, which was Nico, they were studying together um, theology at that stage, and he decided this friend of his needed a girlfriend and so they came through from Pretoria one evening to a church that I was attending and just like in the hope that I'd be there that night. And, um, and I was, and my parents were. And when I saw my cousin, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years, um, I was like, oh, come, I've got to take you to go and say hi to your family, you know. <laughs> and... Um, as Reg and I were walking down the aisle to where my parents were standing and my mom turned around and saw us, she also saw Nico, which had remained at the back of the church, standing there. And she says when she saw him, she knew this was going to be her, hus- her, her daughter's husband. I mean, and she you know, like know that you before were... I even knew what the guy's name was, you know. <laughs> and moms always somehow know. I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, I don't but know. They always why. have this sixth yeah. sense of just. I don't yeah, know. well, she obviously did. You know, yeah. I later said, "You like you what?" <laughs> and she said, "Yeah, he was standing there with his blue suit, and I didn't know who the guy was, but I was certain he was going to become my son-in-law." I'm like, okay. A couple of hours later, I had more or less the same experience after 
Well, they came home, had coffee with us, and then left back to Pretoria. And at, while I was like closing the gate behind them, I just had this knowing that this is your husband. And my reaction was like, no, Lord. <laughs> I'm, I intend going to Italy next year. I don't need a husband at this stage. We can wait until I get back. Yeah, wait till you get back. Why are you doing this to me now? Yeah. And well, I, needless to say, I made it to the front door, not to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> But it all worked out. It all you're worked out, married. and it's like thirty-six years. Thirty-six years now, this month, yeah. And in that time too, it, it was a pretty happy time bouncing back. Mm. You became a full dedicated to his ministry, right? Yes. They started working yes. in churches, and mm. both of you dedicated mm. yourself to to that cause. And it was a happy time bouncing in and out yeah. of Johannesburg yes. as well. And there, there was a moment, if you don't mind talking about it too, it's when you lost mm. your, your second son. Yes. And it seems like a lot of things had been going mm. right. Mm. And that is just the the ultimate crushing for, for anybody. It is. It's, it's, it's a very difficult experience. Um, while we had been in Zerist, um, uh, I remember being pregnant with my first son, Byron Mahir. And I was like, eight months pregnant with him when one of the young people, uh, two of the young people in our assembly, just before their final exams at school, were coming to church one evening and a tire burst on the car. They were traveling in the car rolled and the girlie fell out and she was killed instantly. And I can remember it. You know, it was a Sunday night. The church hadn't even started yet. And the whole performance, but what, you know, that, that played off was really tragic. Um, and I remember an assembly member coming to me um, and saying to me, when the people come back from hospital, what do we say to them? And I said, you know what? We don't say anything because the lady that asked us had had a couple of miscarriages, but she'd never held her baby in her, in her arm. I was pregnant with my first child, so I'd never held my own child. I said, we do not understand what those parents will be going through. So all you do is you take them in, the, in your arms and you just cry with them. Yeah. Because there's nothing else we can do. We cannot say we feel with you because we don't know. This girlie was 18 years old. She'd lived a life. She was on her way to a brilliant career at university because she was extremely intelligent and so on. Don't say anything. Not knowing that, like, five or six years later, I'd be in the same position. Yeah. And I remember when my son died, this lady's husband actually came to me, and, she, and he said to me, actually you know what, I'm very sorry for your loss, but I actually think it is better. Uh, what had happened was my son uh, fell into a swimming pool, had a near-drowning experience, and he was incapacitated for the next 18 months until he passed away. And so this person thought that they 
you know, because of us having to give this child 24-hour care seven days a week, he thought, well, the child having passed on would like, I don't know what he thought, if he thought it would be a relief or whatever. And I remember just looking at him and just like nodding my head and like not answering because I knew he at this stage still had, did not have a child of his own. Yeah, so he didn't, he didn't know, know what he was talking about. Yeah, he had no idea. A number of years later, he walked into my music studio uh, where I was teaching and he said to me, you know what, I just want to ask your forgiveness. I said, for what? He said, I don't even know if you can remember a statement I made when Llewellyn died. I said, I remember it exactly word for word. He said, I had no idea. He says, I realize now if something happens to my daughter and I had to be in the same situation as you, I would most probably hit somebody that makes a statement like that. I said, you know what? You're just speaking out of ignorance. Yes, but it is is a life-changing experience, I think particularly being in the ministry, because what was very bad for me, in the year and a half, while my son was still with us and ill, was going into, and and Zerus was a very small town that we were living at, so everybody basically knew everybody else's business, was going to do, I, I, I would like try and get into the supermarket, at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning when it opened because I knew every all the other women in town would be doing the washing. <laughs> right, so you could do it in peace. And I could quickly get through the shopping center, get food and whatever for the, for the rest of the week and get out there because the first couple of times, even while he was still alive and he was still in hospital, I would get into the supermarket at different times of the day and people would come up to me and say, we cannot understand why something like this has happened to you and your husband. And I would, the first time, I like looked at him and I said, like, what do you mean? And they said, but you're working full time for the Lord. How can, how can he allow something like this to happen to you? And, yeah, you, like, just try and make a remark and get, get out, out of there get as soon the as situation. possible. But basically what I would say to them was, but why not? Just because I'm working for the Lord full time does not mean that I am better than you. And it can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody. And we have to look for purpose or reason or whatever. But I can't say because I'm this or I'm that, it like, safeguards me from tragedy. So how did you get through all of this? Because this is, uh, I mean, on so many different levels and variables, this is a challenge with It is a challenge, particularly being in the ministry because you're normally ministering to people that are suffering loss. And you're the one suffering loss. And now you're suffering loss. And it, it, I think it did impact our ministry because I'm not going to say, you know, we're not saints. We're not superhumans, but we do, I mean, we have emotions like everything. I remember my my husband relating to somebody once that he, he at a stage, he was in his his study and he, he like just 
walked to the window and he like looked up to the sky and he said, you know what, God, I know what you feel like because you gave your son and he died. And I think, look, I must say, I don't know how people that are not believers get through something like this. I don't, I don't know. His grace carried, carried us through there. Because, yeah, yeah. There, I yeah. mean, it, just the fact, because you always search for purpose. Mm. And reason yeah, person, and person does search for purpose. Uh, I'm not going to go into an expository and say, oh, this is the purpose. I'd be lying. It's 26 years later, and I'm not quite sure I've still found purpose. I know it did dramatically change our lives, but one thing you do is you get up and you you know you've got to go on. There was days you I didn't want to get up and get out of bed, and I would literally force myself to get up because I had a, a son that's four years older that needed attention. Mm-hmm. He had to go to school. He still had to be fed. He had needs, emotional needs. So you get up you and get you up carry on. And you really yeah. try to keep yeah. the momentum as much yeah. as possible because yeah. I know the coming mm-hmm. months and possible yeah. years. And you said there was a lot of travel in that time too, mm. which was a big stress. And it, you, some, some of the, you know, that's, that's life. Life always throws in the weirdest. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think breaks, anybody you know? is exempt, you know, um, yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. No yeah. one's exempt. No, one, no one's really exempt. Life is life. I think we've been put here to live it as best as we can, to achieve as much as we can, because I also believe God has placed immense potential in each individual. Which I think is a really interesting yeah. segue to, to what else I want to talk yeah. about, is that you... You lived a very full and wonderful life from learning how to opera sing to meeting your husband <laughs> with your mom's sixth sense mm. and the mm. deep trauma of losing mm. a child. And then at the same time that this was happening, there was also a very tragic thing going on in South Africa, and that was apartheid, yes. which is what we learn about mm. uh, always. But it's really, you know, you lived during this, mm. and life continues on, even though mm. all this hardship was happening. But... Can we switch gears a little bit and talk about how that also played a role in your life? Mm. Because it seems, you know, this is, of course, what happens. People grow up, they go to school, but there's Mm. also this added component of something really dark happening. Yes. So can we go back to maybe your childhood and kind of work through? My, you know, I, I think many, a white child did not understand what was going on behind the scenes in South Africa, if I can put it that way. Yeah. You know, you get born into a family. I think we had a bit of a different outlook, having spent the five years in America, where I can't remember the the exact dates in America when uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. you know, and all that, part of the American history took place. What I can remember was the church that we attended in America, the Assemblies of God in Boston, Quincy, 
was a multiracial church already, which might have had <laughs> an, an impact on my parents. Yeah. But they would have obviously had to adapt very quickly because my dad was there to study and this is another country, is a different way of life or whatever. Mm-hmm. And my brother and myself were, were small at that stage. So, I mean, we just grew up with the kids that were there. Yeah, exactly. White, yellow, kids, black. It doesn't matter. Your Who? kids. You're you kids. Yeah. You know? So you go to kindergarten with them. All the kids. We're just kids. We came back. I can't remember ever asking my parents, why are there no black children in the school? I mean, you, know, you just go to school. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, you're there kids. weren't black kids there, but you, you, you just go to school. And then I remember we moved to the farm, the small holding. There we started to have more interaction with our black population because my mom obviously needed people to help her on the farm with the cattle and, and, and. And obviously these people would have children or grandchildren or something, you mm-hmm. know. And when, if it was grandchildren that were coming to visit their, 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 their grandparents over Christmas time, then we all played together. There was later a family. I remember this one day, I think she eventually had something like six children. Mm-hmm. But we grew up with many of them, you know, playing on the farm, or they would go away to school somewhere else, heaven alone knows why. In, in my children's eyesight, you yeah, know, like, like, why, why are you going to, why are you just you know, going to my like, school? Yeah. Um, I think as a child, you like just thought, well, they're too poor to afford the bus fare going because we were like 25 kilometers from the school that we were attending at that stage. So I think there was... You know, I know people might not believe it, but there was a lot of ignorance in white South African children. Yeah, well, I could Having said agree. that, maybe that is also not true. Maybe it was just in my brother and my case. Having come from a, a, an integrated com- a country like America, I know there were sections, the, the Afrikaner section, although we actually might dad came from that section of the community and my mom was more English. I know there was a lot of Afrikaner families which like indoctrinated even the children from small, you know, carry over the fact that our our black population was lesser, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will not deny that that's well, that's what the rules are trying to do, too. Yeah. And I won't lie, I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood. We, America's okay. not as integrated mm. as the cities are. Yes, and that, that is true. A, that was a big problem mm. for my community as mm. well. And it wasn't, it wasn't legally putting minorities down, mm. but mm. we didn't grow up with mm. them. We grew up with all white kids. So yeah. they, and then those ideas mm. start to propagate. Yeah. Just maybe from other people or just old ideas get sunk in because you're not around them. And then it continues. It just keeps continuing on and on and on. But in this case, it was a legal binding as well, which added a huge, massive weight 
on top of those ideas. You know, and the strange thing is, um, this is maybe what outsiders don't know, but it affected our family very dramatically. Apartheid to the outside world is very black-white. Yeah. Keep them apart. That is what, that, it's actually a German word, and that's what it, I think, I wonder if it wasn't used in the Second World War. Maybe. <laughs> Under yeah. the Reich. You know. I wouldn't be surprised. But, um, okay. But there was internal apartheid also. And it affected my dad and his career immensely. He was the top graduate at MIT of, in, 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 the, in the nuclear field at that stage. And so he climbed the ranks in our, then it was called the Atomic Energy Board of South Africa. And one day when his senior or the head of the Atomic Energy Board had to, you know, got to retirement age and had to retire. Now you must remember, this is a person that had no nuclear background. He was mm. in a position there because they wanted to start a, an, an atomic energy program. Mm -hmm. And he called my dad in and he said, you know what, I'm going to be retiring. And there were two nuclear physicists, my father and another person, which I will not name for political yeah. and uh, you know, whatever <laughs> reasons. Okay. But there were these two people that had basically the same training, although my father was the more advanced and one. achievements. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and the head of the AEB said to my father, I'm going to be retiring and you are the person that should be taking over the atomic energy board. So my dad said, well, Thank, yeah. you, thank you very much. You know, like, he says, but there's one thing you've got to do. And my father said, what? And he said, you've got to change your church. And really? my father said, what? He says, yes, you've got to become a member of the ruling parties. I'm now talking the ruling political party in South Africa, their church so that you can become a member of their elite society so that you can take my job. That's a lot of, oh my God. That's okay, a lot of that's a different type of apartheid we're talking here. This is yeah. a white person saying it to the, the most qualified, qualified, the qualified, yes, thanks for that, that word, qualified person in South Africa to take his job. And he said, you know what? <clears throat> I can't do that because I'm not going to turn my back on a church which I grew up in, number one, which I'm not going to turn my, my back on a lot of things that form part of my... Like who my, I am. Who I am. Yeah. For just... I mean, like, what are we believing? What, what are you guys believing? And, you know, we are believing the same thing. Why must I change my church? Why must I become a member of this other, you know, like, organization, you know? That's a deeper level. And you had to walk away from that post. The other person was promoted to that, to that position. That person eventually became the minister of, of mineral and energy affairs in South Africa. 
And my father basically, as far as nuclear power, faded into oblivion. So it really was that. So there was not just black and white apartheid at that stage. There was segregation between if you belong to the right church and organization and political party and if you didn't. Yeah. So they were trying to really keep control over everyone. They were controlling. When my husband and myself got married and went to uh, our first uh, 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 ministry after our wedding, the same thing happened to one of his colleagues who had studied with him. His wife was a maths teacher for final year school students. And a maths post was open in our town. And because of these, the same church organization with all these other associated political organizations, because we weren't in the same faith as them, she didn't get the post. I mean, uh, we were talking 25 years later. Yeah. And it was still going on until the, the, the 1980s. It's really I remember the 1976 uprisings. I was in my uh, penultimate year of schooling. My parents at that stage were not in South Africa. My dad was working on an international project in Germany and the commuter between Germany and Liverpool in England. And um, because it was such a long project, my mom went with uh, my brother and I decided to stay in South Africa to finish our, me, my schooling, and him, his university. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, this violence broke out in Soweto. And from a white child's perspective, it was, you know, like, what's going on? You know, why is it happening? Why are these people so unhappy? Because I mean, you're just I, I, living I'm, your life, you know? It's... Everybody's just living life, you know. Gabriel, why are you, why are you setting the schools alight? Why are you burning tires in the road? I, I really didn't understand. And they can say ignorance is no excuse, but really, if you have a child one day, are you going to make him read up when he's five years old about the first, second world war, the Crimean War, the What's that other one where America was involved in? Oh, there's a lot of those. Yeah. So. I mean, like, <laughs> do we really have to, you know, educate our children from mother's milk as to all the bad like stuff that. happening in the world? It's almost, oh, oh, what do you think? Like, when when was it the right time for you or when did you notice that things were Well, this really is when I started, like, getting worried, you know, yeah. and like, and particularly with my parents out of the country, you know, yeah, that's right. You're right. Um, is there going to be like a takeover of masses, and what's going to happen to us? You know, you you thinking as a child still, you can be fourteen or fifteen years old, but you're still thinking as a child. Like you you, you start getting scared, and I'm certain, even in our black community, there were a lot of people that were very scared at that oh, stage. Oh, sure. I can remember one Christmas on the farm, we used to have a a little Christmas service with all the people that were working and staying with us on the farm. 
But some of their children had gone to the, the townships like Soweto and so on to get their uh, senior school education. And so they would only come back during school holidays. And I remember now somewhere, I don't know where, but somewhere I'd heard about this one black song. And it's actually so <laughs> nearly laughable because yeah. this black song <laughs> turned into our national anthem once the first free and fair elections took place. And of course, it's Ikilele, Africa. And so... And you just heard it randomly? And I or? don't know where I'd even heard this, you yeah. know? Or I'd heard people talking about the song. And it, like, captivated me, you know, because I was always playing piano and always singing, you know, so like, what's a song? And I got um, a girlie that was my age, basically, minor, the daughter of one of the uh, laborers there on the farm. And I thought, well, she was staying in Soweto or somewhere at that stage. She must know the song. Mm. And so at this Christmas thing, we were now singing our typically Western Christmas songs, and then um, my father or mother, most probably my mother, asked the black uh, uh, people if they wouldn't like to sing one of their songs, you know, and they were always very timid about singing, but our black community have got beautiful voices, and they've got lovely songs, really, yeah. so it's like always was always like an our Christmas treat <laughs> to hear them singing, you yeah. know. And and they sang one or two of their songs. And and then I piped up <laughs> and I said to Mina, sing us in Corsi Sikileli. And it was like as if a wet blanket fell on all of us. And I then that was the first time I experienced but something it's wrong, but you don't understand what's wrong. Because it suddenly looked as if the adults amongst our black community was were very nervous. And she, going into her puberty years yeah, and, young Tina, and, and, you know, must have been amidst all the rioting going on, you know. Um, and she knew that this song was like, although it is, uh, when it's translated, it's a prayer. God bless Africa. You know, give peace to a people, make them prosper. That is basically what Nkosi Sikilele is about, the prayer to the Lord. Mm -hmm. But it had been labeled as a struggle song, most probably by our white government. Right. And what I didn't know was you could actually be arrested for singing the song. And so she became so negative and quietly aggressive towards me that she would hardly even speak to me. And I didn't you had no understand. Idea. Didn't understand it. Yeah. But I think the Soweto riots uh, that, that year um, really started opening... Opening a lot of people's eyes, probably, especially uh, your generation. Thinking about uh, uh, in, in, in the adult community that everything was not hunky-dory in South Africa. Yeah. 
my my next thing I think was when 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 Nico and I went to Zerist, our uh, two sons had been born already, and Llewellyn was ill at that stage. Oh, I no 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 no. There was a, a, another point where I got oh I think my my actual awakening to exactly what was going on here was Byron was small he was about two years and we, old and we came back from Zerist and then a friend of my mom's was teaching at a colored school not in Soweto in in a colored township and they needed a teacher and she asked my mom if I happened to be an Afrikaans teacher and my mom said yes as far as she knew I was a music and Afrikaans teacher and so I got employed by the school to, to teach. Now we're back in Johannesburg, and, and I started teaching there. And at that stage, there was, in the political setup, I think the old white regime was realizing they needed to do something. Yeah. And so they decided... Uh, I, a lot of assumptions because I'm not a politician, but right. this is how I experienced it at that stage. They needed to get the colored people and the Indian people on the white guy's side to That's have a stronger front against the black majority. Interesting. So what they then decided to do was bring out a tripartite vote. So we as white people could go and vote whether we wanted the colored and Indian, and I think I'm, I think even the Chinese at that stage were classed as other colored. Really? <laughs> I think so, yeah. So Chinese and yeah, Asian descent so were classified. We, yeah, um, they, were classified, they were not classified white in, in those years. And so we as white people that were of age to vote were asked whether we would like to invite these other three sectors of the population to join the parliament. Well, I know what I voted. I voted yes. yes. <laughs> like, why don't we just do the whole vote now, you know? But, you know, I was still not so... And, and now I'm teaching at one of these colored schools, so like, hey, you know, this will be great. These guys will be able to vote with us, you know, because it's stupid, you know. Yeah, like, the whole thing is stupid. Yeah. And then these people got very upset, the colored people, you know, because, like, who do you think we actually are? But, yeah, I think the tripartite then actually happened, which angered the black community, I think, even more, you know. So the, the violence in South Africa just started escalating and rioting and, and that type of stuff. And then, you know, the more the rioting, the more the, the government so tries through to the police and through the army yeah. would try and, and suppress this. During this whole time, we were also doing leadership courses from a Christian perspective with university uh, lecturers at a black university in Soweto called Vista University, uh, as well as a lot of the headmasters and headmistresses and staff at schools in Soweto. I can remember, you know, during this time, anybody that wanted to could come and we'd, we'd have uh, 
gospel services there. And I remember being in the middle of a, a, a praise and worship session one day in a school in Soweto when somebody came in, spoke to, to the black pastor there. He came up to, to Nico and myself and said, you better get in your car and leave now. Really? And like we said, but why? We haven't even got to ministering the word of God yet. And they said, you get in your car and you leave now, otherwise we cannot get, guarantee your safety and what people will do to you. You're white, get out of Soweto now. And we literally had to gather our stuff and in the middle while the people were still pray, uh, uh, singing and everything, get into the car and leave. Um, because it was not unknown that if you as a white person got caught in Soweto or in any other township when there was an uprising that you might not come out there alive. Yeah. You know, yeah. where it didn't matter who you represented, just purely because you were white, you could be uh, Well, it's a, amazing when anger target. takes over. Yeah. Um, and all of that suppression finally gets Where I must say our black people have, uh, under normal circumstances, have a very high regard for anybody that is a, a preacher or so. That is one beautiful thing about them. They really regard you highly. But with the anger at that stage in South Africa, just what they went you through. could be targeted yeah. and not even have a chance to say who you are and yeah yeah anyways so we had to leave so we had to move some of our uh, meetings out to the farm where Nico and I were staying on this farm where I grew up and and I think there was a real eye-opener for me once because one Saturday we had a whole day course and so there was a group of about 20 or 25 people, uh, lecturers and headmasters and so on that came out for, for, for the occasion. And during a tea break, one of, of, of the lecturers saw some French books that I was trying to study French at that stage. And she saw the French books and she said to me, oh, Lizette, who's trying to learn French? And I said, well, I am because I've got to sing it in some other production in a few weeks' time. And then this woman started speaking to me in fluent French. And I just like, <laughs> looked at her and like, what? How <laughs> do you know this I French? can't even follow the second word that she said to me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, when she stopped, I, I was literally, my jaw had dropped. I didn't yeah, know no way that there were wanted. people of color in South Africa that could speak French. That just shows you the high level of total ignorance as to what is going around you. Sometimes I don't know how we are so ignorant, how we go through life so ignorant, but I, I found out that day I'm totally an ignoramus. And um, <laughs> I like that I, word. I <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> I am the same. And uh, oh, that word doesn't get used. It, I know. I don't know if I've ever of heard of it, but South I like Africa. it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I looked at her and I said to her, "Ma'am, where did you learn to speak such beautiful French?" I said, "Oh, I stayed in the struggle years 
which was actually still going on at that stage, but a lot of the people had started returning to South Africa. Um, I think at that stage, yes, at that stage, President Mandela had uh, returned from his captivity on Robben Island, mm -hmm. um, although he had not been released at that stage yet. He was released a year later when I was at the colored school. But um, he was already on South African soil again in Polsmoor prison in Cape Town. So when that had happened, a lot of the, the dissidents and intelligentsia yeah. had started returning from their either self-imposed or government-imposed exiles uh, from all over the world. And some of these people had landed in France and could speak French fluently. Others had landed in Italy and were speaking Italian fluently. And this was like, to me, an eye-opener because I didn't even know these people were living in the outside world. Yeah, or um, annexed or forced out. Yeah, and they were all educated with bachelor's and master's degrees and... Yeah, and because they'd been living in these communities, they obviously learned the languages, just like we as our pathetic little white community in South Africa had forced Afrikaans on them, forced English on them. And instead, instead of five, our government, I, I, instead of our government forcing us to, to learn uh, an, an ethnic language. Yes, we've got 11. We've got 11 in oh, South well, Africa, so languages. it's a bit challenging. Um, but I, I always feel um, our government did us in, in that sense, you know. Um, they, they looked down at our black people. Um, they led us to believe that we should look down at our black people. And, and here's the major contradiction, you know. The black people are not as good at, as us, or not as intelligent as us. Yet that same government expected these not as good, not as intelligent people to learn our languages, namely English and Afrikaans. Sounds but pretty contradictory to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not good enough, you're not intelligent enough, but you've got to learn these languages. I mean as opposed to the white children don't have to learn those people's languages, like Zulu or Kosa or Tswana or Sutu. I'm just naming the four major ones. Yeah, of the 11 that you have. Like, huh? Who's not intelligent? Yeah. We as white people, we're not intelligent. No, it's just... And that contradiction, it has been a common theme throughout my travels. When you see oppressive governments, mm -hmm. it's very contradictory. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. None of it yeah. makes sense. What were they thinking? I don't know. I have no idea. And uh, thank you, Lizette, for coming on and sharing all of your insights. It's very interesting time period for South Africa and very interesting life for you witnessing all of this while studying to be an opera singer and going through the twists and turns of life and
I just wanted to thank you for coming on. I won't waste too much more of your time. This has been really fun. I really think the listeners got a lot out from it too. But before we go, I have one more question for you. And you've you've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've seen apartheid. You've gone through the loss of your son and changing of careers. And like you said, sometimes it's really hard to go on. And for people that, you know, maybe they do have the rule book stacked against them or have something really tragic and it's really hard to gain that momentum. How or what would you say to those people to help them continue on or get up out of bed and keep moving? You know, I I, I think it might sound cliche now, but um, you've got to make a decision within yourself to keep going. doesn't matter how bad or how hard the times are. There is always, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not always the next train. It might yeah. be a train, yeah. <laughs> but at the, at, at, at somewhere over the time you're going to come out of that uh, uh, tunnel. Let me just say, first say this. There will always be people in a better position, okay, whether it is uh, financial, food-wise, house-wise, circumstances in the country, in your job, there will always be people that are in a better position than you. You know, there's, there's just a couple of top dogs. That's how yeah. it is. Right. Okay? There can only be one president of a country. <laughs> right. Not everybody can be, be the president. You can aim at that. Look what Mandela did. He went from looking after sheep and he became president. So there's always going to be people that are above you. It's sometimes good to aim and use them, keep them as a role model. But when things are really getting tough and looking at these other people depresses you even more, just turn around and look in the other direction. There's always going to be people that are in a worse situation than you. They will be. You don't have to look far. Yesterday, I spent my birthday singing at an old age home. Not a white old age home. (laughs) There were two white people and the rest were colored and black people there. And I, I can remember standing next to one black lady's bed singing. I don't know if she was Alzheimer's. She was in the Alzheimer's section, so she must have a certain amount of dementia. The moment I started speaking to her and gave her her Christmas gift, she started talking. But it was too soft for me to hear. But what I did pick up was a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt. I got the impression that maybe she didn't want to be there and that she'd been left there or something, you know, bad had happened in her life. And and at that stage the rest of the family came in and, and started singing and I started singing. Halfway through, I just cracked up and I couldn't sing anymore. And I just realized, you know what? There's, there's the answer. If I'm feeling bad about something, there's people in a lot worse position. Yeah. I, I mean, we've, we've stood next to, me and my husband, stood next to people dying of AIDS, literally holding them until they've died. Um, 
there's always something to be thankful for in your life. And as long as, in, in the bad circumstances, as long as you can find one thing to be thankful for or, or happy about, then just, just push ahead. It's where am I going? I don't know where I'm going. But, um, but there's always light at some end of some tunnel. You've got to even aim to find somewhere. It. Just keep courage. Keep faith in yourself and in the human race. Yeah. Because once, you, once you've lost, lost that, then, then you're really in a bad shape. Yeah. And thanks for sharing that. Mm. I think that's very beautifully mm. said. And, you know, it's true. Mm. It's very true. I think you know more than most people. And thank you for coming on, Lizette. This has been really fun. Yes, it's know, been great. I know. <laughs> it's been very what, interesting. <laughs> this is the first podcast ever. And she did great. I, I know, I, everyone out there listening, I think she did pretty damn well. So thank you for coming on the show. And for everyone listening out there, we'll talk again soon. Mm, Thanks. Great. Yes, and enjoy your time in South Africa further. We will. We definitely will. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Oyster World Radio. And thanks again, Lizette Vanderlinde, for coming on the show. We miss our little home in Josie and hope to cross paths again someday. Keep up to date on everything going on in the Big Sabbatical on Instagram at Nathan.Wanders and the blog of my partner in crime, Jackie Gishbacher at GishOutOfWater.com. Check out the links in the show description for more information. Special thanks to Charlie Milliken for all of the Oyster Jams. Check him out on Spotify or at TroyMilliken.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N at Patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio. For only $5 a month, you get all of the behind the scenes plus some unique travel tips, so don't miss out. Thanks again for tuning in to Oyster World Radio. We'll be back in two weeks. But until then, this is Nathan Lieberman. Signing off. I can't take control of my life If I'm too busy looking at the stars And thinking about all time that's gone by It's time for a change in my day to 